0: Welcome to episode 39 of FBI Retired Case File Review with Jerry Williams. I'm a retired agent writing crime fiction inspired by actual FBI cases. In this episode, we speak to retired special agent Tony Krabbit. Tony served in the FBI for more than 24 years. Her investigative specialties were public corruption, organized crime, and money laundering. As a crisis negotiator, she responded to a number of kidnappings and barricade situations. And as an instructor at the FBI Academy, she was designated a subject matter expert in intelligence, interview, and interrogation. She later supervised special agent operations at a satellite office out of the FBI Detroit Division. Tony is interviewed about the Crisis Incident Response Group, CERG, and specifically about the Crisis Negotiation Unit and what the team was responsible for. She's also interviewed about the case of the kidnapped grandmother, Hetty Braun, who was taken on her 88th birthday and held for a $3 million ransom. Can you believe that? They kidnapped her on her 88th birthday. Prior to retiring, Tony was Assistant Special Agent in Charge of the FBI's Jacksonville Field Office, where she was responsible for criminal intelligence, cyber, crisis management programs and operations. Shortly after retiring, Tony founded Risk Confidence Group, LLC, to provide operational risk consulting and services focused on insider threat, safety, and security risk intelligence, crisis management, and other related areas. Tony also provides expert commentary for local media outlets regarding crime, terrorism, workplace violence, and issues related to the FBI. Before we get to that interview, I must say thank you, thank you, thank you. Uh, you listeners of FBI Retired Case File Review are absolutely fantastic. My novel pay to play is doing well. It now has 30 mostly five star reviews on Amazon. And most of those have come from listeners who have either been on my launch team or who have purchased the book. So again, I want to say thank you. Now, last week, I announced a very aggressive goal, maybe impossible goal uh, that I have. And that is, even if it's just for a day or a couple of days, to try to rank in the top 100 in the crime category on Amazon. But the only way that I'm going to be able to do that is to get the support from more listeners. I also mentioned last week that for a short period of time, I was discounting the ebook for one more week. The ebook is only $2.99, 50% off, and it will go back up on Saturday, October the 15th. So if you are a regular listener and you want to support my authorpreneurial efforts, this would be the week to do that. It's very exciting to have the support of the listeners of FBI Retired Case File Review. You guys are the best. You rock. Now, here's the show. Hi, everyone. I want to introduce my guest, Tony Krabbit. Hi, Tony.
1: Hi, Jerry. How are you?
0: I am excited to talk to you. And I know that hostage negotiation is, you know, one of your areas of expertise. And so it'd be great to hear a little bit about that and then to go right into a case that demonstrates uh, the skills that you use. Sure. All right. But before we get into that, if you could tell me a little bit about yourself, why you joined the FBI and when you joined the FBI.
1: I joined the FBI in 1991 and was fortunate to have come from a hospitality industry where it was all about people. Um, it's kind of a funny story how I, I joined. I, it was something I always wanted to do from a little girl. I remember seeing a movie about the first two, ma- two female agents and thinking, wow, that would be, you know, I would really like that. I bet, you know, but boy, could I ever do that? And so it was always this long-term dream, I guess. And I was looking to leave the hospitality industry and I I actually talked to a friend of my husband's and he said, you know, he was with another federal agency and he said, you know, there's a the FBI is a lot bigger. I know they're recruiting women right now. Um that might be a better fit for you. There's a lot more opportunity because because they're so large. And I applied and it kicked off a two year process. As you know, the process is very can be very lengthy. And I was appointed and I attended New Agents class January twenty seventh.
0: Nineteen ninety one. Great. And what where were you assigned, the different places, if you can just go through those real quickly? Sure.
1: My first office was in Merrillville, RA, which is out of Indianapolis. So our it was the old Gary RA, Gary, Indiana. From there I went to Washington DC in the Critical Incident Response Group, which we'll talk about. That's where they housed the one of the units there's the Crisis Negotiation Unit. I was in training division. I went over to the training division, and I taught interview and interrogation and also some intelligence and communication concepts, and then I went to Detroit, and I was a supervisor in the North RA, the uh, Oakland County RA out of Detroit, um, and then was promoted down to Jacksonville as the assistant special agent in charge for, so I had criminal, um, intelligence, and human for a while as well. Well, it sounds like the time that you spent in the
0: crisis negotiation unit is a really good place for us to, to dig into some of the things that you did. So tell us a little bit more about that unit.
1: Sure. SERG is the acronym for the Critical Incident Response Group. And it's, it is a really, a, it, it, that's exactly what it is, is a response group. And it houses the crisis management unit. That's where HRT sits, the rapid deployment unit. The um, VICAP, which is the Violent Incident Child Abduction Unit, the Behavioral Analysis versus Behavioral Science, the Behavioral Analysis Unit was there, and the Crisis Negotiation Unit. And that the Crisis Negotiation Unit really is the, is the arm of the U.S. government that does the negotiating. So if there are Americans kidnapped abroad, that is, you know, and you think you are all alone, nothing is being done. That is the US. government's arm negotiating arm, And so there are people scurrying and strategizing and working really hard to negotiate um, the freedom of these Americans that are kidnapped abroad. That unit, as part of that unit, I was also involved in um, managing a section of the United States for all of the field negotiators that are placed in the FBI field offices. And that's how I came to be a part of the case we're going to talk about today.
0: Well, it all sounds pretty fascinating. I wasn't aware that the negotiations for you know people kidnapped overseas is the responsibility of the FBI.
1: I'm sure that there, you know, we we collaborated with a lot of other agencies. Certainly, Department of State has a role, um, and and worked closely with the local federal agencies in the in the various countries. Um, it, you know, whoever we had to, you know the the diplomatic arms in these other countries uh, as well to get our job done. But, yes, South America especially, we're seeing it in Africa. The Philippines for a while was a a hot spot where you had um, Ibu Sayf, and you had the FARC in in South America, you know, where kidnapping was and is in some areas still a business.
0: Mm. All right, but we're going to talk about a case here in the U.S. Could you take us uh, from the very
1: start? Sure, this was February fourth of two thousand and three, and Hedwig braun and, and everybody called her hetty. Um, she was eighty eight years old. She was celebrating her eighty eighth birthday on February fourth. Her grandchildren had just left the house, and i I understand that she has about fifty four grandchildren. Her husband went to bed and she decided. To just wind down the evening, you know, reading a book at the kitchen table. Now, this is February in um, an area close to Racine, Wisconsin. So, if you know anything about the Midwest, they are very, very cold winters. Um, she's reading at the at her kitchen table, and she is she is the the subject of this discussion, right? So, I want to just lay out who the other players in this are because it's kind of a twisted twisted story. Her grandson, Robert Mann, he was about 30 years old at the time. He was very close to his grandmother. This was his maternal grandmother. And uh, he and his brother, David, uh, operated a construction company with their father. Um, they were well-known in the community and appeared to be well-off financially. So those are the two main main players that I'm going to talk about today because they played the biggest roles in, in this action, this incident. So if we start at the beginning, her 88th birthday, Everyone has left. She is sitting at her kitchen table. It's about 10 to 1 a.m. in the morning and she gets up. She feels a cold breeze and she had she had the lights went out. And so she thought, well, somebody just hit a pole or something in the neighborhood, you know, down the street. She feels this uh, breeze. She gets up. She finds that her sliding door is cracked open. So she shuts it. And as she goes to shut it, someone grabs her. And as she described it, I actually, after this, I was conducting some research on survivors of kidnapping incidents. And she described it this way to me. She said, this person threw her in the trunk of a car. She had only her nightgown on. She actually, in the trunk of a car, as they went down the road, she knew. She said, they turned left down Highway 20 toward Elton, Wisconsin. They made it right. I knew what road we were on because it was bumpy. So she was very, very aware. Um, they stopped. They switched cars, they threw in another trunk of the second car, and she said they drove a long way. When they stopped, they opened the trunk, picked her up, and they put her in what she described as a trailer with a tarp covering the back end of it. They threw her on a bumpy mattress that didn't have any sheets or anything on it, and the only thing on the mattress, there were bolt chains that had been bolted, bolted to uh, the floor and could reach the mattress. Um, she said there was a small padlock. And as they tried to get the chains around her wrists, the big, the big links were too big. He, the the guy couldn't get them to bend enough. So he couldn't chain her wrists. So he moved it and chained both of her ankles to that mattress. So there she was. Was she blindfolded? She was not blindfolded. So she could see, but it was total darkness there. So this individual, he wore a dark ski mask the whole time, dark clothing. She said um, once he left, he pulled the tarp down, and she could no longer tell whether it was day or night. He never spoke, never spoke this whole time. Ever, all the time that, that he was doing all of this and, and she, you know, I'm sure fidgeting and trying to talk to him, he never spoke. Uh, she was fed once a day, and each time that he fed her, he came in. Again, he never spoke. He would take her hand. He would put a bun in it that had like, it was either a hamburger or some pulled pork and then a cup of juice in the other hand. And I said, you know, I said, what well, did you, did you, did you eat it? You were glad to have the food. She said, no, I didn't eat any of it. She said, she took that food. She was so cold. She took that food and put it against her body for the warmth and, and kept it there until it was, until it was no longer warm. And then she threw it away. She said it was no, no use to her. She wasn't
0: hungry she, or, do, or was she suspicious that it might have had, you know, a sedative or something in it?
1: No, you know, we never really talked about that. She said she drank the juice, you know, she drank the juice, she liked the juice. It ultimately gave her ulcers uh, in the end, but um, she just said it was the food was of no use to her anymore and uh, she threw it away.
0: Now, what kind of health is she in? If we could take a uh, just a step back a little bit. She's 88 years old, and, you know, what kind of, uh, h- how healthy was she?
1: I mean, she was, was pretty healthy. She was, she was a small lady. She was 100 pounds if she was that. But she, she was very healthy, obviously very strong-willed and, and um, sharp mind. But, you know, when you think about this being the dead of winter in Wisconsin, all she had on was a nightgown. And there's no heat
0: in this trailer, I take
1: it? No heat in this trailer, she did ask for a blanket, and, and she told them, and she was cold at one point. They threw a blanket in, uh, gave her a blanket. She said, but there was no warmth in it. So, you know, if you have an old blanket and it's already cold, it doesn't do much for you. Um, but they did give her an extra blanket when she asked for one, but, again, never spoke until the time that they had her read a ransom note.
0: Now, what's going on with Petty's H- husband, you know, this initial time she's taken – Do we have any idea what he's doing? Is he still asleep, not aware that
1: she's gone? Right. He slept through the night. He was blind, legally blind, and very hard of hearing. So he he got up the next morning, and uh, I don't have all the details on him because he never got any of the phone calls. He never got any of the ransom notes. It was the children, the grandchildren, David mainly, that received the notes and the calls and the emails. So he then was the person who notified the rest of the family. So her husband really did not play a role other than, you know, obviously he was elderly as well and just trying to keep him aware and and worry-free.
0: Now you were saying that the captor never spoke. Was she asking him to, you know, see her family or talk to her family? Was she asking him for, you know, some type of contact or what was going
1: on? Right. One of the things she wanted to make sure is that, you know, that her somehow her family knew, but the person never spoke until he came to her with a note. And he what he did is he made the phone call to Robert Mann at the construction company. And Robert said, Grandma never called very often. So when I got a message that Grandma was on the phone and needed to talk to me, I took the call, even though he was in a meeting. So he took the call and. Uh, As Hetty describes it, the the note was written in in large print and on a large piece of paper. And he had her read it and he would just hold it up for her. And it said, we want three million dollars or they were going to kill her. And she said she did tell David that she was being she had been kidnapped, that she was being held and chained to a mattress and that they wanted three million dollars or they were going to kill her.
0: Well, that's just. Crazy. It, does the family have $3 million? You, you said that they appear to be well off. Did they have $3 million?
1: Yeah, whether they had $3 million, you know, they they could come up with the money. Uh, the idea is in negotiations is to try to, you know, to try to obviously negotiate the money down. But first thing is to get proof of life and maintain proof of life throughout the negotiations and to try to negotiate you know, down that dollar amount to try to gather some intelligence about the person doing this. One of the things that, you know, when somebody asks for $3 million, the first thing that goes through your mind, at least for me, in working a lot of these, I've gotten in cases where a kidnapper has asked for $50,000 or, you know, a few thousand dollars. And really, you look at that and you think, wow, that's that that maybe is, is kids or somebody who's just trying to pay one debt off. $3 million, makes you think about professional you know this is well thought out this is professional uh this this may be very very serious well now i know you
0: you know debriefed her uh Mm -hmm. after all of this at this point in time what did she tell you um what was she thinking what did she tell you she was thinking when she had to read the ransom note and when she was you know alone in that trailer what were some of her thoughts
1: so a couple things one was she she said to me she. Said the, and this is a quote from her, I wasn't afraid. The Lord was taking care of me. I prayed He would, and He did. And she said she just tried to keep her mind going. She felt like her prayers were with her, that someone was sitting there with her. She said religion was part of her life, but though she may not show it all, show it so much sometimes, uh, but she said she's always prayed for things, but what's right, and tried to do what was right. But what was what was kind of funny when we talked about specifically the note um, and she said, you know, they said, we want three million dollars or they're going to kill me. They want three million dollars or they're going to kill me. And she said, I was thinking to myself, they must be nuts. who's going to pay anything for me. You know, and uh, she said I she said she didn't have any fancy clothes. She um, as her kids grew up, they were about the same size. And if she had somewhere fancy, she needed to go and she would just borrow some of theirs. So she was a very down-to-earth lady. The typical grandma. Yes, yes, your typical grandma.
0: Now, was she thinking that this was going to end badly? Did she think she would be able to, you know, survive?
1: She realized her own mortality, I think. She realized the serious state she was in, just being chained, no bathroom, no clothing, a few cold blankets being fed once a day. Uh, but when she when i asked her you know how how do you think you survived this her re, her initial response was i never expected not to survive so it was really her mindset for survival which is so important in so many things and she just did not think her life was over and and she didn't she felt like she did not have any reason to think any differently nobody really could gain by her her dying you know by killing her so she just did not allow herself to Think about that.
0: She sounds like a very special lady.
1: Sitting and in interviewing her and uh, watching her, she was just, she was just really, really a sweet, sweet lady.
0: Was she a homemaker? Uh, you know, uh,
1: what was her background? She actually had worked in and around mental health and um, worked directly with psychiatrists. The people that she worked with were very interested in making sure. The supporting staff understood mel- mental illness and how to handle it. She had learned a lot about listening. And that's what she said. She had learned to listen and listen for feelings, which was really interesting to me because that is what negotiators train. That's how they train. We are trained to listen for what is underlying the an emotion label and demonstrate empathy. Those are the core skills.
0: Wow. So she had those. She had those skills and it sounds like she made use of them.
1: Yes. It, it was that, that strength of mind, the, the awareness, how sharp her mind was and, and her, her awareness, the level of detail that she was able to remember in this was nothing short of incredible.
0: Wow. So that's what got her through this whole ordeal? Yeah. Yes. Take us uh, take us further. So she's been made to read this note to her grandson. What happens next? Right.
1: This case was really unique in that it um, it it went through a lot of things that we had not necessarily seen in in other cases. So you have a telephone call, and she she reads you know she tells Robert what's going on. When he gets the call, he's really shaken, saying it was hard to believe that she was saying what she was saying, but I believed it. Because she sounded, you know, like she was really in in trouble, so he has to, to go and tell the family um, there was a phone call made to his father's residence. His father was not around, so so that was that didn't get us anywhere. Robert receives a note in his mailbox, and so first we have a phone call to the father that really there's there's nothing accomplished in that phone call. Then there is a note placed in Robert's mailbox. So Robert was who was chosen you know, by the family and by the kidnapper as the person to deal with. So then Robert gets this message in his mailbox about a day later. And the message tells Robert, put a cell phone number in the window of your business. So, okay, somebody had to have driven by Robert's home, right? Somebody had to have placed it in there. And so they know where these people all live. They've they've definitely done their homework. So you combine that with the, the dollar amount that they're asking for. And you're you have to start thinking. And this is where the negotiators are are thinking about who and what this could be. And all of the information coming in is being provided to investigators then, because there's there's obviously a cast of thousands conducting an investigation. And
0: at what point is law enforcement notified? And at what point does the FBI become involved in, in this case? Right.
1: Robert notified law enforcement right away after the phone call, after he told his family, then he called law enforcement. Uh, Law enforcement called the FBI almost immediately. There was a very good working relationship between the the, uh, local department there and and the FBI. So that's a good thing when you can come in, you know, negotiators. And a team, you know, is not just one person. It's usually not about nine people because you're there around the clock. So basically people stayed with Robert now from the time this happened. And they're working together. So he he posts his cell phone number in the business window. So obviously there's surveillance to see, you know, who might be driving by and looking at that, um, waiting for a phone call over the next day. No call ever comes. And and now this is there's media involved. and And so there's that aspect of trying to manage the media, trying to strategize, trying to think about where is going to be a good spot to have a a money drop if we have to do that, or an exchange. Do you know how the media found out about it? Because my
0: understanding is in a, in a ransom case, you want to kind of, you know, hold back from the media. Right.
1: Well, the fact that there was a response by law enforcement at all, you know, a lot of times they monitor the radios and such. So they're, they were able to figure out basically that, that Hetty Braun had gone missing, had been reported as missing. Okay. So now we have a phone call, we have a message in a mailbox, and then over the course of the next day, there are two emails sent that are, again, talking about having the money ready and starting to talk about a drop. And and I'm I'm not going to go into all the details of of that, but suffice to say, it really set off a, a flurry of activity in really trying to gain some edge, some control in this drop. Because again, now it's been two days and we have no proof of life. We, we need to know, the big thing is needing to know that she is alive or trying to find her uh, before something happens to her. Again, realizing that really anything could have happened to her at the age of 88 and in the conditions that she left the house in. So there was a lot of uh, discussion with Robert. There was a lot of work in you know trying to have... Statements that did go out to the media that were humanizing, Hetty, you know, talking about her being a grandmother and having a family that was worried about her and uh, what a good person she was. Things of that nature to just, you know, try if if there was somebody really trying to hurt her and intent on hurting her, that they, you know, you try to make it a little bit more difficult.
0: Let me ask you this question. And I know I'm jumping ahead of myself, but, you know, I'm, I'm really feeling empathy for heading. <laughs> did the kidnappers know that they did this on her birthday?
1: I don't know. You know, I don't know in the end that they did. I
0: mean, it's there's no good time to be kidnapped, but being kidnapped on your birthday. That's really sad.
1: Right. You know, obviously, there had been a lot of people at her house during the in the days prior to celebrate her birthday and certainly that day. So. It, there was a lot of planning that was evident, you know, because there was no one there. It was, you know, the, the power. Basically, when she thought the lights went out, that there was a car accident, this person had had cut the lines, So there was a lot of planning involved in this. So, you know, we were obviously in any of these cases taking it very, very seriously.
0: Did you have a chance to talk to Robert? What was
1: his take on the negotiators? Right. Robert, because he dealt with negotiators, that was you know, also part of my research in in, in survival and then the value of the negotiators in this, always looking to see what we can do differently, what we can do better. Because we come in, uh, when we come in, and we, we really, in a situation like this, and I've had a couple other instances that did not go as well, you know, the victim ended up being found dead, we move in with these families. And in one case, I was at, with a family, me and the other, the rest of the negotiation team would rotate, but we were there for 10 days. That can be very intrusive. It's a very emotional time for these families. Um, they're questioning everything that's going on. They're, they don't see a lot of the other investigation. So sometimes there's angst. Sometimes there's frustration. Sometimes there's anger, disagreement. Sometimes they are trying to do their own investigation, use their own contacts. Uh, that they have to, to, to find information. And you certainly don't want uh, an independent investigation going on that could run into your own. So so there's all those things that the negotiators play a role in managing and trying to control and navigate. So he had the negotiators staying with him. And his thoughts were that that he didn't think it was intrusive. He didn't feel like it was intrusive. He thought it was a great benefit to him, that it was the information and expertise Um, The verbiage that they would help craft of how to say things, what to say, when to say it, when to be quiet, sometimes most important. The strategy, which is really thinking all of the what ifs, what if this, then that. What if they call and ask for a public place? How are we going to, you know, where would we prefer uh, to have a drop or an exchange? How do we ask for proof of life? How soon? How far do we think we can push this person? all of those things go into strategizing in a, in a situation like this and then certainly the the most uh, critical point would be that that drop because the drop at, you know at an exchange or a drop you certainly don't want to have a drop and then not have an exchange and there's always great great risk in that risk to the person making the drop risk that law enforcement will be detected risk in missing it completely missing seeing somebody pick it up so so there's just a tremendous amount going on but he was very appreciative uh he viewed the negotiators as true problem solvers that demonstrated a grasp of the psychological aspect of problem solving in people Um, so yeah he was very complimentary and the
0: negotiators you're talking about were deployed from surrogate and and uh where where is surrogate located
1: Surg is an arm out of headquarters, but it's at an off, it's it's in its own offsite location, so for easy mobility. So there's a couple ways that the the headquarters this crisis negotiation unit will work. We have, we would train the field negotiators. So we had a very strong relationship and working relationship with the field negotiators. We knew what their strengths were, uh, what their skill set was. So they responded directly and immediately we often served as consultants. It's that bigger picture view, not quite as close to the situation and we'll serve as consultants. And in this case, that was my role. And so I knew the lead negotiated on this very well. She participated actually with me in, this, in the um, research following and, and in these interviews. So that's where you know, here's what's going on, here's how they're feeling, and we, we can strategize together, sometimes most effectively being, you know, a 1,000 miles away just because we have so many more resources that we can walk over and have, you know, additional consults with, behavioral analysis. We can facilitate all of that activity for the field. If it's a protracted incident like you've seen with the Freeman, the Montana, Waco, those are the big ones that, that people will probably remember. Were there protracted situations and, and in the case of the international kidnapping, the crisis Negotiation Unit negotiators will deploy.
0: Okay. Now you were saying how much Robert appreciated the negotiators.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, was he helpful? Robert was very, very helpful. Uh, Robert was very focused during this. There was little emotion from him. I mean, he, even even he said He did not feel this this great sadness or anything. He just felt almost as if it was just adrenaline, extreme focus, need for action, wanting to get things done. He did have a lot of resources. Uh, He did tap into some of those resources. You know, we did have to talk to him a couple of times. What kind of resources? Well, he had friends in the police department. He had friends in the city. He had friends in business. I mean, this was a well-known, prominent family in the area. So just trying to tap into into his resources to try to make almost as if, you know, making sure law enforcement was doing what they were supposed to do. And that's not uncommon. He just wanted to do something. He just wanted to contribute. He thought, you know, if I do X, I can, you know, it'll be a big help. But doing that without coordinating it with law enforcement is a lot of times counterproductive. So it was just trying to, manage that aspect and make sure that, you know, we, that the negotiators knew who he was talking to. And and that's the reason, too, that that you kind of move in with these these families so that you can have these discussions about, well, who were you talking to, you know, and make sure that the investigators know that these other contacts have been made.
0: All right, so the the people that were actually living with him, moving into the house, Mm -hmm. were local members of the FBI? Yes. Okay.
1: Local negotiators,
0: right. Okay, very good. I'm sorry to (laughs) keep interrupting the story, Mm -hmm. but let me just ask you about that. So in uh, could you talk a little bit about the local offices, the field offices, and negotiators that are working out of those offices? Are they trained? Or do they come under CERG uh, also?
1: Yes. So that's how I started. I was a field negotiator out of our Maryville, their Indianapolis division and responded to a number of the field incidents. For example, uh, a bank robbery. The, the guy went in, robbed a bank and as police were coming to the bank, he ran away, was running through some yards and there was a lady hanging her her clothes on a line and he grabbed her and pulled her down her own steps and barricaded himself there. That, you know, that triggered me having to go out. And again, when I'm in a situation like that, I want somebody else. You can't, it's very, very difficult to negotiate a situation like that by yourself because there's so mo- many moving parts. You have, as I've said, you have to let the investigators know what's going on. If it triggers a, a special operations team, like a SWAT team response, You need to let them know you're the eyes and ears for them inside. So you're working together. You are, you know, trying to humanize the victim. You are trying to make sure the media doesn't, you know, hurt your efforts, your negotiation efforts, that they are supportive of it. And, um, and you want some behavioral analysis. You want some additional expert advice. And so these people at CERG, where I was at the Christ Negotiation Unit, have a lot of experience having responded to these incidents. And so that is the role. And right.
0: They're advisors. advisors. Right. Oh, right. I get it. All right. So let's go back to, to Hetty. She's still in that trailer. She's still got the nightgown on. She's still cold and chained. What's going on now? So,
1: so we had the note. We had the email. There was no phone or the, the note left in the mailbox with no phone call. And how much time has passed? This this whole thing happened over a three, basically a three-day period. There were two emails that came from a Wi-Fi cafe, and that was really the turning point in this investigation. Because at the time, you know, this is this is fairly this 2003, so this was wireless. The Wi-Fi cafes were fairly new at the time, so it was a matter of getting that technological information. Could we figure out who used? the open Wi-Fi, you know, to send these these um, ransom demands and drop demands via email. Uh, and the other piece of it was this was a small town. This is a very small town. And so maybe we could find some leads as to who this might be by just doing some interviews. In this particular case, the person in the Wi-Fi cafe, uh, as I recall, was able to identify the different people that were in there that day that put that gave leads to Who this individual might be. The other thing that I didn't mention earlier is in the note that was left in the mailbox, there were indications that this was not an English, a native English speaker because it, Mm -hmm. there was some incorrect English, uh, words used as if this was a, someone who, whose native language was other than English. So in this particular case, um, there were, there were leads to who it was. And the investigators, without going into a lot of detail there, um, were able to set up a surveillance at the at the Wi-Fi cafe and where the in the drop area. So in, in just very meticulous investigation, along with some of the technical records, they were able to, to start to narrow it down to a particular area. Behavioral analysis played a role in this as well as in providing information that, you know, this person was probably very familiar with a very small area. It was someone that was right within the area. So the other side of this was really scouring, scouring the area for knowing it well, I guess, is, is the best way to put it. So let's just move into, to, into the resolution here, because I think. We get a sense of Hetty, and, and don't you want her out, Jerry? I want her out. Yes. <laughs> Hetty is cold, no, and she's old, and I just want. Conditions. We have no proof of life that, you know, that she's going to be okay. So we just, you know, essentially, it's, we, this drop has got to happen. We've got to do something. You know, we've got to make the drop because how long can she survive? Has she survived this long? It was frankly that, it, I mean, very tenuous situation.
0: So-, so the only time that they've ever spoken to her was that first time when she read the notes. Yes. Wow.
1: Yeah, yeah. So we're preparing to pay the ransom. um, You know, doing all that 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 entails. You know, um, making sure that Robert is clear on his instructions. He was going to bring the money. He was going to make the drop. That surveillance units were in place. That we had, you know, contingency plans for if the kidnapper called and changed locations, which is not uncommon. We had where we would like it to go. Floating the idea of putting it off. A day, which can be risky, or putting it off a couple of hours, so all that is is in the mix. And in the end, the agents actually had the kidnapper, who turned out to be a pseudo relative. I'll say he was a um, he was a Dutch native, and uh, he had actually never spoken to Hetty, but he was the boyfriend or fiance of um, of another relative. A cousin of Roberts, I believe it was, but it was a young lady. He was, his name was Ranier Revizin. Uh He was from Amsterdam. He had attended a family party during that year, about six months earlier, and it was a pretty lavish party. And, and he believed to be what was a lavish lifestyle. Um, and so he decided to kidnap what he believed to be the weakest link. Um, but what, in, in interviewing Hetty, one of the things she she said is he picked the wrong grandma. The other grandma was the rich grandma. <laughs> he says, this one doesn't have any money, so he picked the wrong grandma. Um, but agents were actually able to locate what they believed to be where she could be held. This trailer that was associated with him—it was actually not very far from where Robert Mann lived. Um, it was actually on the outskirts of his property.
0: So, oh, can we back up for a second? Sure. How did they know? I mean, what made them realize it was Rainier? Great.
1: Right. They had narrowed it down to um, a pattern of activity, as I recall. And and remember, I wasn't on the ground for this piece of it, but they had, I do recall that they narrowed it down to a pattern of activity of people who had been in that Wi-Fi cafe and had signed the ISPs and, and I want to say Facebook or some other things. Because when you go into a Wi-Fi, a lot of times people will check, will, will do some act, you know, they have to sign into their own, um, email, or they check other things that are associated with them. So it was a pattern of deduction and, and surveillance. So they actually were able to surveil him into that area, and they saw the trailer. And um, as I recall, agents had actually gone in and, and tried to look in those windows, undetected, obviously, by the kidnapper. But it was so dark, they really couldn't see anything. So prior to the drop, um, he went back to that trailer, and and they were able to stop him and rescue Hetty. Wow. Yeah, it was pretty amazing. And, you know, the great thing is, is when these end in a positive way, obviously she was taken to the hospital and spent a couple of days in the hospital to get rehydrated and, and warmed and make sure that there was nothing else wrong. But, you know, it's, it's just a fantastic feeling for everybody because so many of these don't end that way. So what you did then
0: after all of this happened Mm -hmm. is that you went back to interview her to kind of gather information for a best practices uh, type of report.
1: Right. Really looking at, you know, surviving a kidnapping and and what goes through a survivor's mind. What is the process of survival? What makes one survive versus another? Uh, What are they thinking? The idea behind it was to try to help further educate you know negotiators and and use it in training and yes use it in in best practices see if there was something that we could take learn from it learn from the people that we have to deal with as well you know the the representatives the family representatives who end up being in maybe a third party intermediary negotiator that um, you know are taking instruction from negotiators like Robert Mann did so yes I traveled out to Wisconsin sat with Hetty one full afternoon and her and her grandson Robert, and uh, she was she was just just a treat a treat to to interview and I just I'm still amazed when I think back to the level of detail that she was able to remember. A lot of times, as you know, Jerry, you have to go into you know the cognitive interviewing mode where you take them back a full day and go through excruciating detail of. You know, what did you eat for breakfast? What did you drink? Where did you, you know, how did you set your fork down? For people to re- really remember details. And she... All right, just, little triggers. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And she just remembered with such detail. It was amazing.
0: So what happened to Rainier? What's his last name again?
1: Yeah, it's... I don't know if I have pronounce it. Well, it's, we'll just call him Rainier. Rainier, yeah. Ravisgen. Ravisgen, if I'm saying that right. He was charged with kidnapping. He was originally sentenced, I want to say, in in uh, 2004, with uh, with kidnapping, and was sentenced to about 40 years in jail. He is now appealing his sentence based on based on his plea. He ended up pleading guilty to kidnapping, but there's something in his plea that he is arguing he didn't understand. So he it is uh, it is up for debate in the court system, whether they are going to hear that and and how that's going to go. It could be reduced down to 25 years. I don't think he'll get less than that.
0: That's interesting that it's, you know, still being resolved at this point. Right. Do we have any idea what's going on with Hetty? Is she still with us? Hetty passed away in 2004. So, I mean, this is an absolutely fascinating case. I mean, when you think about, you know, somebody being kidnapped, they're always, you know, like a Bank president, or you know, someone like that, right? It's not an 88 year old
1: grandmother, right? This was this was the first for, for me, uh, for sure, for sure. You know, there's there's often the child kidnappings, which are horrible. You know, you hope you hope those, you know, turn out well. Sometimes they do, sometimes they don't. There's the, the barricade situations, like I mentioned. You know, I just remember the young man running through, taking this woman. Um, she wasn't 88, but she was elderly. She was probably my age at the time. And uh, you know. that's
0: not elderly.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Jerry. Uh, and, t- you know, holding her barricading, you know, family members or mentally ill who will barricade themselves in in a situation and maybe hold somebody hostage with them. You know, those are all very similar but different some of the strategies are the same but it's all so individual that these are all they're so interesting because it happens more than people realize uh, I don't think people really understand the depth uh, that, that the FBI negotiators the role that they play in these incidents and just all that goes on behind the scenes so I'm happy to be able to share this story and just how great Hetty Hetty was as a person
0: Yes, definitely. Definitely. And I take it you have articles um, about this case that we'll be able to to share with the listeners, too, so in case they wanted to look into it a little bit
1: more? Sure. Yes. I know the L.A. Times covered this even with a small article back in 2003. But if you look up, um, you know, just Google, Google Hetty's name, Hetty Braun. And uh, there are articles from the Wisconsin kidnapping in February of 2003. A lot of them say kidnapped on her 88th birthday. So you can't miss that. And then I know that there are some things out right now on the this appeal that is out there.
0: All right. What I'll do is I'll do the work. I will uh, go ahead and, and research all of this. And I'll have links to those articles on the show notes for this particular episode.
1: Okay. great.
0: All right. This case with Hetty is uh, was absolutely fascinating. You had mentioned to me that uh, there was another case that you actually appeared on Dateline.
1: Yes, that's correct. In 2009 in Jacksonville, Florida, a little community outside of Jacksonville, uh, Quinn Gray went missing, was kidnapped, and it was an ordeal over Labor Day weekend. I had just gotten to the Jacksonville office as the assistant special agent in charge, and so I had responsibilities for the operational command and response and supporting the sheriff. The sheriff's office was had worked this for two days before we we got involved in it or a day and a half, maybe. And um, so I'm asking for where are the negotiators? And they said, we don't we, we have none. There's none available. So, you know, the, at the FBI, I said, who are your best interviewers? Give them to me. And so I ended up doing, you know, basically on the fly, training them, developing the strategy it was the 2011 season premiere of Dateline. It's two hours. It has more twists and turns. And some of the stuff that happened that isn't even covered is is pretty amazing. But it's a story. If, if you liked the Hedy Braun story, you will love the Ransom story.
0: Okay. Well, I will make sure that I find uh, a link to, to that Dateline story yeah. and uh, put it on the show notes, too, yeah. because... I know you had to make that decision which one you're going to talk about, right. but this way we'll be able to share uh, those, uh, that kidnapping story with the listeners, too.
1: Right. Yeah, that one's already out there. It's actually it was, they named it Ransom, but it, the, the, the victim was Quinn Gray of Panavedra, Florida. So, you know, we're at a
0: point now where I'd love to have you kind of take us through the last part of your career. When,
1: when did you retire? I retired in May of 2015 with um, almost 25 years. And I retired as the assistant special agent in charge out of Jacksonville, Florida, division. And what are you doing now? I started a consulting business. It is risk confidence group. Um, we are working as a network of FBI agents doing consulting on, on uh, controlling risk, increasing capability, and improving efficiency. Uh, specifically, working, you know, we like to focus, I think we have some of the front-end understanding of the real insider threat, the broad nature of the insider threat versus just access control And um, workplace violence, there's much more to it than that. Crisis management and really helping companies and emerging companies that are really growing build intelligence-led safety and security programs that that, that establish that solid foundation right from the start. So that's where we're focusing now. So what's the name of the company
0: and how can people contact you?
1: Risk Confidence Group, and we have a website. It is www.riskconfidencegroup.com, or they can contact me. Uh, I'll get the email if they they send it to info at riskconfidencegroup.com. Yeah,
0: you you see stories all the time in the newspaper. So your company um, is somebody that a corporation or, or, or even a small business if they have a problem they can go to you to get information about what to do what to prepare for right
1: yes you know the biggest challenge in this jerry is, is there's a lot of sometimes angst in saying well i'm not sure we really need that but when you think about one incident uh whether it be workplace violence one incident of an intrusion one incident where a um an employee you know Steals, uh, you know, gives access to someone else, or you know, is is has weak security awareness, and so somebody gets in, or that these companies become a victim of ransomware, which is just growing. You know, again, this is where my negotiation skills will come in. You know, are they ready to negotiate? Are they ready to pay? Or are they ready for their systems to be completely wiped? I mean, that's now um, three we options, had,
0: right? Yeah, we had. Um we had uh, somebody on to talk about cyber intrusion, but could you quickly tell everyone what ransomware is? And
1: ransomware is, is really was named because it's it's like um, it's like a kidnapping. Really, they hold your system hostage. Sometimes somehow they are in. You probably don't know that they're in, and you'll get a message that says it. You know, pops up on the screen, and it says, "Hey, uh, basically, your you have." You know, a day, whatever it is, or to pay X number of dollars, or we're going to wipe your system. And so it's a virtual
0: kidnapping. Yes,
1: yes. So you know, as it grows, there will be competition. So they will start to negotiate. And it, originally, the first few that I saw, they did not negotiate. They did yeah. not ask for a lot of money either. But they were true to their word. They they released the system when when the money was paid. That doesn't mean they're out of your system and they can't do it sometime down the road, right? So there, so then there's that whole aspect of it as well. So when I think about, you know, the resistance that I sometimes face in, in marketing this type of business, one incident, you know, the cost of, of any of our consultants for uh, a week or two weeks um, over a period of time, that, you know, 40 hours, 80 hours, whatever, over a year's time, can ultimately save you millions.
0: All right. Well, I will also put uh, links directly to your company's website. Okay. Uh, on the show notes for this, so if anybody's you know looking at the uh, episode on my website, they'll be able to click over easily.
1: Sure, that'd be great. Thank you.
0: All right. So um, I'm going to give you the opportunity to sum everything up. Um, you know, about your career, um, about the FBI. Anything that you want to say?
1: Sure. I, I would just say, and I say this always, the FBI offered me a tremendous amount of opportunity. It is a fantastic career for anyone. It is a fantastic career for women in particular. You come in and there's a world of opportunity that I don't think the public realizes. We do a lot more than, than just investigations, which obviously the FBI is, is very, very good at. I think the FBI has certainly taken some lumps over the last couple of months, you know, in 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 the political environment of today, but I think can't you can't turn a blind eye to all of the good investigations that are going on in the criminal counterintelligence counterterrorism arenas and in the work that we do with state and locals to keep the, these communities in our country safe. So for me, it was fantastic. I I'll, I was excited to retire, excited to, to come to the end of my career as well. And I'm excited at this new chapter. I'm really trying to grow this business. I think we have a lot of great things to offer. You know, you know, and I know how smart and resourceful and knowledgeable uh, the other agents are. So I'm really trying to, you know, continue to work with agents and put all of our depth of knowledge and experience together in the private sector.
0: And that's the end of the interview. As always, back at jerrywilliams.com, I have photos of Tony, I have links to newspaper articles about the Hetty Braun kidnapping case. And there is also a link to that Dateline episode that Tony uh, was interviewed on about another very fascinating kidnapping case. If you enjoyed the episode, I hope you'll share it with your friends and family. I make it easy for you at the bottom of the episode show notes. I have all the social media share buttons. And I just want to remind you that I am now doing a monthly newsletter where I link to all of the episodes from the prior month. You can join my crime fiction newsletter by going to my website, jerrywilliams.com and signing up to receive it. So this week things have slowed down a bit and I was able to read a fascinating book. It's called Blood on the Tracks and it's by Barbara Nicholas, N-I-C-K-L-E-S. Barbara Nicholas, Blood on the Tracks. It is about Sydney Rose Parnell, who is a Marine who comes back from the Middle East, the war in the Middle East, shattered. Um, She bears the scars, she has PTSD, and she sees dead people. She is working as a railroad cop, something that I can relate to, because the last seven years after I retired from the FBI, I worked for Philly's public transportation system. So I uh, really got emerged into that, you know, railroad mentality. So I enjoyed uh, that part of the book. Basically, a young woman is murdered. And the suspects are members of a homeless group who also ride the rails. I guess back in the day I used to call them hobos. And so she works with the Denver Police Department trying to identify who brutally killed this young woman. It is a fascinating book because not only is it a crime novel, it has a little bit of the paranormal in it in that because of her PTSD, she you know sees and speaks to dead people, mostly other Marines that were killed in action. It does have another element to it, which involves skinheads. The whole mystery in the book is who killed this woman? Did the murder relate to something that happened back in Iraq, or with a violent group of skinheads who also ride the rails? I definitely would recommend the book. It's very interesting how she uses and weaves these different elements and different genres into her crime novel. So again, my crime fiction recommendation for this episode is Blood on the Tracks by Barbara Nicholas. This episode was sponsored by fbiretired.com, the only online directory made available to the general public, featuring retired FBI agents and analysts interested in showcasing their skills to secure business opportunities. I want to thank you for listening, and I hope you come back again for another episode of FBI Retired Case File Review with Jerry Williams. Thank you.